thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through his word. Thy praise confess, yea, of thy word, yea, my tongue would sing, yea, I confess, yea, I confess, for thy commands are righteousness. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Savior and our King. God is good to us to give us another Lord's Day to gather in His presence. Amen. And even though it is like 16 degrees outside, it's it's at least 17 or 18 in here. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Should be warm enough. If it's not, you can blame Jeff, uh, who is vying for head deacon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was telling the I was telling the guys that they need to vote on. Uh, who's going to be head deacon among the two of them, and they both voted for each other. And uh, so uh, the, I'm going to have to be Kamala Harris and break the Senate tie here at some point. But, um, you know, we're thankful that God has brought us into a place that he has provided that is beautiful and uh, warm and, and has lots of comfortable places to sit. And um, we gather together today knowing that God is here. The Bible says, where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. Amen? Now this may seem like kind of a, an obvious fact uh, because God is everywhere, but what the Bible is teaching us is that God is here in a special way. He is here to listen to us, not just as individuals, but as a congregation. We're, it's not just, you're not just here as a family, you're not just here as a person, but we are here as the church of Jesus Christ, and he hears our prayers, amen? Psalm 86 says this, bow down thine ear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. How many of you have needs from God? Needs that God can only meet, right? I am poor and needy, preserve my soul, for I am holy, O thou, my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of the servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. How many of you need the mercy of God? I need the mercy of God. For thou, Lord, art good. Thou art ready to forgive. Thou art plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Sounds like we need to call on God. Amen? Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou will answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. 
For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in the truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. And I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all of my heart. And I will glorify thy name evermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul, and they have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. O turn unto me and have mercy on me. Give thy strength unto thy servant and save the son of thy handmaiden. Show me a token for good that they which hate me shall see it and be ashamed because thou, Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. Let that be our prayer today. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies, which according to your word are renewed and new every morning. Lord, that that love, that spring of love, that bottomless, boundless spring of love that springs up for us that comes from you, Lord. We pray today that we would go to that well and we would have our thirst quenched today for we are in great need of your mercy. We pray as we gather in your presence knowing that we are sinful men and women that you would cleanse us, Lord, that you would do as the scripture reminded us last week, take a coal off of the altar and touch our lips and that you would cleanse us, Lord. Lord, that we indeed might go forth and speak your word, that we might be vessels of your mercy as well, Lord. Let us who look unto you for life and light find ourselves the light of the world. And may the life that is in us, Lord, come forth out of our bellies as rivers of living water for the lost and for a world that is sick in need of healing. We pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would be with us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change us by them and draw us nearer to you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So this is not a farming sermon uh, or anything like that. So he that planted the ear hears. Uh, my text is going to be Psalm 94, 8 through 15, but we will preach through the whole psalm as has been our tradition uh, these many, many weeks. Psalm 94, verse 8. Understand ye brutish among the people and ye fools. When will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall he not correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? 
The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. That thou mayest give him rest from the days of his adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. As we come to your word, Lord, we are not interested in contrived ideas or sermonizing. We want to know what your word is saying. Lord, when this was written, we don't exactly know what was going on in the lives of the people who are hearing it or or the one who wrote it. But we do know what's going on in our lives. And we pray today, Lord, that you would apply this to us. Lord, that this would be not just a prayer someone wrote for others to pray, but it would be our prayer to you today. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. And you may be seated. Revenge is a wonderful thing. And I'm going to say that again because you might think I didn't say it, but revenge is a wonderful thing. When I said this to a few people, they were kind of like, no, no, it's not, it's not. But I'll say it again. Revenge is a wonderful thing. Now, I know it doesn't sound right, but it's true. No one uh, is certain who first coined the phrase, revenge is a dish best served cold. But when they did, they certainly struck a chord in many an unsettled heart. It means that when someone is going to be repaid for evil, Jonathan, the things that they've done, whoever deals out the revenge should take time to plan it out. It should not be carried out in the heat of anger, but calculated to exact the most satisfaction and success. And you might go, now, this, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable here. I don't know if I should really be enjoying vengeance. Well, you're all a bunch of liars if you don't admit the fact that you absolutely want revenge. You should want it. We'd be lying if we said that we hadn't enjoyed revenge in literature or cinema many times. You can't watch a Western, Jonathan. The entire point of every Western is what? It's revenge. Somebody does something bad at the beginning to somebody they... You know, some woman or some poor kid or some, you know, honest rancher. And what's the entire uh, Western about, Josh? It's about revenge, and you're going to stick around, watch it, because you want to see it. You want to see it, and you want to see it bad. Right? Haven't we struggled within ourselves thinking about ways to bring about revenge on others who have hurt us or have hurt those that we love, weak ones. Come on, guys. You know, you can't be, you're not being honest. If you love somebody and you've seen someone hurt them, if you haven't said, oh, I really would like to see something done about that. Come on, raise your hand if you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't, well, I don't know if that's a sinful way of thinking. I don't think it is a sinful way of thinking, if you can think of it. The right way. That's what we're going to talk about it today.
Revenge is one of the most repeated devices of storytelling anywhere. It is certain to keep the audience tuned in and hanging on until what they get, they must have. They must have it. We must have revenge. Our minds plead. We must have it. And once we're made aware of a terrible injustice, real or fictional, isn't that funny? It can even be totally fake. It's made up. It's on a character in a book that doesn't even exist. But as soon as we hear something bad has happened to them, what do we want? We want to stick around because we want to see revenge. The desire for revenge is a desire for justice. We have this desire because we are made in the image of God and justice is satisfying to the soul. Injustice eats at us like a cancer. And many of you may have a hard time coming to grips with this, but it's what's wrong with a lot of us. We look around at a world and we see it and we're like, I guess no one's going to do anything about that. Come on. You know you've done it. You know you've said it. You know you've fought it. Oh, yeah, they're just doing their thing again, but I guess nobody's watching and nobody cares and no one's going to do anything about it. Do you know when you say that and when you give into that, Ashley, you know what you're giving into? Faithlessness. Because that's not true. It's not true that justice is not coming. It's not true that God is not going to even out all that's been Uh, perverted and destroyed and messed up it's not true that God is not watching he's not listening and he doesn't know in fact the psalmist says in Psalm 58 10 you might even be uncomfortable I remember when I preached this psalm I remember some people going you know I don't I don't really know about that verse there that's a little harsh folks there are not Bible verses that are too harsh to read the psalmist says Psalm 58:10 The righteous shall rejoice when he sees vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, does this sound like a passive acceptance of what God has done or does it seem like there's something that's happening inside of a righteous man when he sees justice done, when he sees vengeance exercised on those that need it, right? Kyle was reminding me last week that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, they're not there and going, oh, Lord, thank you for loving me and forgiving me. No, they're like, Lord, oh, how long will your judgments wait, oh, God? How long? It's a real feeling we get. I can imagine in Africa the horrible things that happen over there, right? The first time I Googled that country, the the five things that came up were Christians beheaded. Five Christians beheaded. Ten Christians beheaded. That's what all of the search engines were pulling up. Christianity and that country. And you're telling me, I mean, my my brother uh, was telling me that someone sent him a video and he didn't really know what it was. And he said he really wished he hadn't opened it. But it was a video of Muslim extremists taking someone's head off. He said he was so angry when he saw it. He's like, why would anyone send that to me? Do you know that's going on in the world that we live in? Do you know that, you know, Boko Haram is taking and, and they're taking women captive. They're forcing them to be their wives, their 
I mean, do you know this is going on in the world? How many of you think that's just, just fine, no big deal? It's not, a, it's, it, it's not fine. It is a big deal. And something needs to be done about it. Amen? The problem is, as wonderful as the notion of vengeance is, it is not ours to execute. And this is where we run into the problem because what we want, we don't just want vengeance, we want to do it. We want, I, I know there are things that I've heard and as I've heard about them myself, I'm thinking, you know, I, you know and maybe this is not your temptation, but I think I, I can do something about that. I got a high-powered rifle with a scope. I'm not afraid. Like, I mean, come on. Have you ever, never really had thoughts when you hear someone did something horrible, horrible to somebody? This cannot just be okay. You hear about a guy in the neighborhood that's hurt a bunch of little girls and you're like, doesn't it, don't you seethe with the desire for God to do something about it? For somebody, in fact, you don't even care who does it. You just want it done. Vengeance is mine, though, the Bible tells us. Vengeance is mine. Everybody say, vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So it can't be that vengeance is bad. It's just who deals it out and how it gets dealt out. Now, that is the rub. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I shall repay. Everybody say, God will repay. It says this a bunch of times. I was looking for the reference in the Bible. Well, you're not going to find the reference. You're going to find reference after reference after reference of God promising that He's going to do it, that it's His to do, and that He will do it. If you need a couple, Deuteronomy 32, 35 and the Old Testament and Romans 12, 19 are just a couple of the Old and New Testament, but, but it's mentioned over and over in the New Testament multiple times. Why do you think that is? Because we want it. We look around and we're like, God, is, are you watching? Do you know what's going on here? It's not that vengeance is bad. It's whether or not it's ours to deal out. And we know it's not. In fact, though, praying to God to avenge you and to execute vengeance on those who hurt others is perfectly acceptable. You might even feel bad about that. You might even go, I don't know if I should come to God and ask God to, to deal out punishment and, and judgment and vengeance on those people. You might go, I don't know, that doesn't sound like, like Jesus. Well, it sounds like the psalmist here, and it is the word of God. It is the model for our prayer. It is a song in the songbook of the people of God. You see, when injustice has you all tied up in knots, you have to do something with it. And I think that a lot of us feel like it's wrong, like, like we're, not, so we're supposed to just let it go. We're supposed to not care. We're supposed to just surrender the fact that no one is going to do anything about it. But you know what I found out? That you actually cannot do that. That if you do that, you know what you're going to end up being? You're going to end up being bitter, and you're going to end up being cynical, and you're going to end up branding God with something that is not so. We're going to get to it in a minute, but did he that made the ear, uh, Sister Joy, can he not hear what these people say? He that made the eye, can he not see what these people are doing? And does God care? And this is a good question to ask. And the answer is, yes, he can see it. Yes, he can hear it. And no, he's not going to sit by and do nothing about it. 
but it seems like we have a role here. The Bible says you have not because you ask not, and you ask uh, sometimes the wrong things that you might consume it upon your own lust. Do you know asking for God to bring judgment and vengeance on the wicked is not a self-serving prayer? You might go, well, it kind of feels like it because they did me bad. Nobody knows how to deal out vengeance like God. You can think you would, you would mess up, you would fall down in the middle of it, you would fail, you would end up getting killed in the process of it all, but God, that's not God. How many of you see things that ought not be so? Does it excite your passion? Does it tempt you to faithlessness as if you care more about this thing than God does? I think we're all guilty of this, and I think we have some repenting to do and some prayers to offer. If you've been involved in foster care, Lord, you feel you're like, Lord, could you have them run over with a truck, Lord? Lord, they can't have these children back. Lord, they can't bring them into a life of drug addiction and prostitution and poverty. Oh, God, do something, God. Come on. If that does not swim around in your heart and your soul, then you're not filled with the Spirit of God. I'm telling you, there's something in us that says, no, Lord, please do something about this. This is not a wrong thing to entertain. In fact, it's good. Because if we don't entertain it in prayer with God, we're going to entertain it in our minds, and we might even end up doing things we shouldn't do. I've come close to doing some things I shouldn't do. I remember taking a gun with me to a meeting of a biological dad, and I was thinking, if I have to shoot him, well, then I guess I do. I'm thankful I did not. But there's something that, you know, you love a child, and you want what's best for them, and you see these people are going to destroy their lives, and you're like, no! Right? Come on. Anybody have emotions like this or just me? Psalm 94 is a passionate prayer for God to bring his vengeance and for the psalmist to get to witness it. And you go, now wait a minute. Is that even right? I want vengeance to come and I want to see it. You might go, I don't know if that's right. I mean, Michael's smiling on the back row like, I don't know, maybe that's not good. Our 2022 minds don't like the way this sounds but the psalms are written for all time and they were written for you and they're written for me now the greatest story of revenge that's ever been written i think comes from the bible and it is the story of esther it's not the story of how esther revenges anything on anybody it's the story of who how who god exacts revenge now if you know the story, as we look at Psalm 94, we're going to look at the story of Esther and I hope into our own sin-stained hearts and see what needs addressed and redirected here. Remember, vengeance is not bad, it's just not ours to deal out, right? Now, we can't get into all the details of the story of Esther since it's nine chapters long, but if you're having trouble with this and, and, and you're wondering if God's going to do anything about something, maybe you need to read all nine chapters of the book of Esther because... You know, the book of Esther kind of works like this. How many, how many love the, the, when, when, the, when the story's over, they always add in, and the person lived happily ever after, and they bought a farm, and they married, and they had 12 children, and, 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 you know, and, and they shot the biggest deer in the world, and, 
and they had a great lodge on a lake. And I mean, how many how many of you relish in the ending of thing when they tell you all the good that happens? Does anybody like that? You know what the book of Esther does? It's three chapters of God dealing out vengeance beyond the, most of the story we actually know. We know the story of Esther, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you a brief outline of it. But did you know the story of Esther doesn't end with the death of Haman? There's three more chapters, Joy, of revenge. Yeah. In Paul Harvey fashion, I'm going to start the story of Esther here and jump into the psalm, and then we'll get to the rest of it at the end. Is that all right? So let me read for you the first few verses. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Psalm 94, which is, as you will see, a prayer for vengeance. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, for emphasis, right? He repeats himself, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, God, to whom vengeance belongs, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud, Lord. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph, O Lord? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces the, thy people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. They slay the widow, the stranger. They murder the fatherless, and they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Folks, I'm telling you right now, if you can't read these first seven verse, verses of uh psalm 94 without getting mad about something yourself and going i think i know how this guy feels then maybe you just haven't lived enough life in one of two old testament books named after a woman esther here and the other one is ruth we learn about a great persian king named ahasuerus and in history he is known as king xerxes the first and one day while he's having a great feast uh, he calls for his beautiful wife. You guys know this story? His beautiful wife, Vashti. Oh, hey, I want to show off how pretty she is. Come on, but she was having her own party, and she really did not need to be bothered by this, you know, brutish, nasty king. I'm having a party with all of the princesses, and I'm having my own party. And I think he probably could have dealt with this pretty well if there weren't a bunch of other guys around going, you mean you called for your wife and she didn't come? I mean, seriously? Like, what if our wives hear about this? Uh, what if all the women in Persia decide they aren't going to come when their husbands call? This is going to be trouble. You better do something about this. And so he's like, that's right. And they say, here's what you do. Put her out. Don't have anything to do with her anymore. And have a beauty contest of all the beautiful women in the land and pick you out a new wife. Now, I hadn't really thought about, but you talk about getting even with a woman this guy is getting even with a woman who has humiliated him in front of people but now he's a heathen here and so this is what happens this this, uh, this all happened during the time when the rebuilding of Jerusalem and many Jews still remained in Persia there was a group that had rebuilt the temple and they had rebuilding the walls and they're back in Jerusalem but a bunch of people were still in Persia there with King Xerxes And there was a man who lived there, and his name was Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. He had adopted his relative's daughter who had died, and her name was Esther. Also, many people know her as Hadassah, but her name was Esther. So after this uh, sort of a beauty contest was held throughout all the land, Esther was chosen the new queen. It's kind of a, you know, it, it almost sounds like a fairy tale story, right? You know, the poor girl 
who is part of the captivity of Israel, is now married, and the great queen of all of Persia is a little Jewish girl who was kind of a slave, and now she's the queen of all. Kind of a neat little story, right? But that's, that's kind of where the story starts, not where the story ends. It's a great story, but the point and the purpose of the story comes into view when a very powerful man, a close friend of the king's named Haman, filled with hatred for God's people, hatches a plot to, to have all of them killed and convinces the king to sign his plan into law. He goes home, he tells his wife, he said, I've been made second in command in all of Persia, but I can't even stand it because this one guy will not bow. I go by this guy every day, and instead of bowing like everybody else, he won't do it. And he goes, it's taken all of my joy. And like, we'll just have him killed. He's like, oh, no, no, no. We're going to have every Jew everywhere killed. He's going to exact his what? His revenge. It's pride of life, folks. You, you offend somebody's pride of life, and they will hate you. And they won't just hate you, they'll hate you and all of your people. And they don't just want to get even with you, they want to get even with everybody. Once this decree is made, and this is signed into law, for he does convince Xerxes to do it, a clock is set on the 13th day of the 12th month that all the Jews in the entire kingdom of Persia will be put to death. Now you have to understand, the kingdom of Persia is huge. I don't know, you know, I didn't have time to, to, to delve into the details of this too much, but I think it extended to Ethiopia and, and into India and the Middle East. And I mean, it was a massive, massive kingdom. The Bible describes it as one of the largest kingdoms of the earth. But the king does not know his beloved wife is a little Jewish girl. And Haman doesn't know who he's really dealing with. You see, these are God's people. And you don't just exact revenge on God's people. You don't do it. Why? Because God is there. People can't just attack you and hurt you and somehow think that God is not watching and he's not listening and he's going to do nothing about it. You see, Haman was so petty that his desire to kill the Jews stemmed, of course, from his own pride How disgusting and self-centered and callous can you get? How many think you would like old Haman? I think all of you would want to kill Haman. You hear this. He's like, someone offended me and upset me. I'm going to kill them and all of their relatives and all of their entire people. We're going to kill all of them. At this point in story, it seemed as though he had won. But he hadn't. And this is really a big part of revenge stories. He builds a giant gallow nearly 70 feet tall in anticipation of the day, and he begins dreaming about the death of the Jews. So what does Mordecai do? He tears his clothes, he puts ashes on his head, he goes into mourning, and he begins fasting and praying. Everybody say, Mordecai prayed. You see, when Haman was offended and when his pride of life was insulted, when someone wouldn't bow to him, he exacted revenge. 
And he wanted to see revenge not just on one guy, but on all of his kindred. But when the man of God, when he hears this, I mean, what's been done to Mordecai now is way worse than what was ever done to Haman, right? He just heard that all of his relatives and every Jew in the entire uh, country is going to be killed. And so he responds by what? Getting mad, doing something bad. No, he responds by fasting and praying. Folks, when we feel these feelings, what we should do is take it to God. Psalm 94 does not have an author or inspired heading to give us. And as we begin Psalm 94, we come to a prayer I think could have been very much prayed by Haman. Or not Haman, but Mordecai. It doesn't say that he did. I'm not insinuating that this is his prayer, but a prayer like this. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, show yourself. Mordecai may have prayed a prayer like this, and it would have been more appropriate for him to do so. And when you see something wretched like this, this is what you should do too, because vengeance belongs to God. Everybody say it. We've got to keep saying it. Vengeance belongs to God. It's not that vengeance is wrong. It's not that we're wrong to even want to see vengeance. It's wrong when we need to be the, the avenger, the avenger ourselves. This is not to say, forget about it. Nothing's going to be done. This is to say, I'm going to give this to God. I'm not saying to give it to God because you have the power to take it from Him. I'm saying it because you cannot take from God what belongs to Him. And vengeance belongs to God. Dare you steal from God? Offer your injustices to God and unburden your heart from a yoke that you cannot carry. God will not disappoint. If you live your life looking and waiting and hoping for the opportunity to exact revenge, you're going to be a miserable person. This payday that's coming someday is not going to be dealt out by you. Verse 2, lift up thyself, the judge of the earth, and render a reward to the proud. The psalmist is praying for God to take action, not merely to take notice. He wants something done about it. And isn't that how we feel? It seems asking God to do something about the wrongs that we see is quite appropriate. Is this what you do? Or do you complain about the wrongs instead? You complain to others about the wrongs? Do you mope? Do you, do you believe that God doesn't care? Do you accuse God foolishly in your inner dialogue? Verse 3, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? Often our petitions are filled with passion. Passions we feel and here we see what is tormenting the psalmist. When we see a prolonged injustice, this is when it's rough. You know, you know, it happened five seconds ago. Okay, justice is coming, but when, when it doesn't come and a week goes by and two weeks go by and a month goes by and years go by, it's kind of rough. How long, God? This is the question the 24 elders asked, right? How long, O oh Lord? When we see a prolonged injustice, something not dealt with in time that we think it should be, we ask God how long. It looks like they're winning, God. Haman looked like he was winning, and Mordecai looked 
like he and all the Jews were about to lose their lives. Why aren't you doing anything about this God? This is where he was when he began his prayer. But aren't we glad that sometimes our prayers can begin this way, but they're not going to stay like that. Because when you take and cast your cares on the Lord, and when you give him the burden of the injustices that you see, and when you give him the burden of this and you hand it to him, then you do what the Bible says, cast your cares on me. Why? Because I care for you. How long shall they utter and speak hard things, it says in verse 4, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? Doesn't it make you mad when you hear their proud speech? I remember being outside with my friend who didn't believe in God, and he would, he would look up at the heaven and go, Oh, if there's really a God, then strike me dead. You know, and I'd be like, Yikes. He wasn't a bad guy. Well, I guess he was. He wasn't bad to me. The psalmist was troubled with their proud speech. Verse 5, they break in pieces, thy people. He wasn't just troubled about what they said, but he was troubled about what they did. They break in pieces, your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. God, these are your people. They're hurting your people. Sometimes we are more hurt because there are people. You hurt my brother. You hurt my sister. You hurt this person that means a lot to me. You know, we need to think, do they mean something to God? These are your people, God. They are hurting your people. This is an appropriate way to pray. He begins to indict them for what they do. Verse 6, they slay the widow, the stranger, and they murder the fatherless. Now, this is a true accusation, I'm sure. It's here in the Word of God. But what is it saying? They are hurting the weakest, most vulnerable people in the world. Can you see where this is really, really upsetting? Guys, come on. Does this upset you? Remember Jesus said these people devour widows' houses, right? What does that even mean? Like, they, they, they gain their wealth from stealing from poor people. God, do something about it. Nothing excites our desire to see God's vengeance on those who hurt the weak and the helpless. What we do then, we take it into our own hands. Do we steal from God and make vengeance our goal in life? I say no. Take it to Him in earnest and passionate prayer. Be like the persistent widow Jesus talked about who went to the judge over and over and over and the judge finally like, oh, I have to give this woman what she's saying. Uh, or she'll just keep coming and coming and coming. And you go, well, what is that? The Bible says that should be you. So don't just bring your petition once. Bring it over and over and over. Oh, God. Verse 7, yet they say the Lord shall not see it, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. This reminds me of the devil in the Garden of Eden. When the devil is in your garden, he may not be coming there to go, oh, did God say that if you eat of the tree... You're not going to live. No, you know, the devil's going to say to you, you know, God's not really watching. God doesn't really care. These injustices, you care more about them than God does. Don't listen to the devil. He's a liar. God will not be mocked, the Bible says. A man will reap what he sows. Amen? They boast against God, and who's going to shut their mouth, people? It's going to be God. In verses 8, 
In verse 8, the psalmist turns from God and he begins to speak to those who deserve God's judgment. And you know, this is actually not a bad thing to do. You ever find yourself talking to people? Like, man, if they were in front of me, you know what I would say to them? I would say, you, you know, I can't, you know what you did and it's so bad and, and, and you think God, how many of, come on. This is not a bad thing to do. Talk to them. Why? Because God's with you. You don't need to go and get in their face. Go ahead and have a dialogue with them, with God. Verse 8, understand you brutish among the people, you fools. When will you be wise? And that's what's going on here. In his prayer, he's talking to them. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? You don't think he's listening? You don't think he's watching, but he is. And you brutish people, when will you be wise and when will you learn? Judgment's coming for you. And so now he's turned from a, an inward dialogue with himself and one that is almost complaining about God or demanding of God. And now he's turned his focus to the, to the one that needs revenge. He that chastiseth the heathen, shall he not correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? And the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Can you see how in this prayer, he's, he's, he's addressing these people that need addressed. You can even get it off your chest talking to God. You may say, well, I, you know, I, I, I need a counselor so I can talk about all the things I want to do to them. The Lord will be our counselor. Verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are vanity. But then you know what he does, Jonathan? He moves to talking and he's preaching to himself. You know, sometimes the only preacher around is you, Christina. You're there and you're faithless and you're feeling like God's not doing anything. Sometimes it's time to start preaching to you. That's a good use of your mouth in prayer. And that's what he does. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. The, the psalmist begins to pray and begins to realize that God has brought this chastisement, these evil things that they've seen, these difficult things, that this was from the hand of God. God is sovereign over these things. And you know what? God who brings me blessing, can he not also bring me chastisement? God who lets me see the injustice, can he not be the one who brings the justice? Thou mayest give him rest for the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. He begins to preach to himself and he's letting him know that the wicked might be building a gallow 75 feet tall, but it isn't going to be for me, it's going to be for him. That the enemy might be digging a pit, but it isn't going to be for me to fall in, it's going to be for him to fall in. And what happens, Sister Joy, as uh, the psalmist begins preaching to himself. He'd be saying, oh, there's coming a day, brother or sister. Do not despair, have faith. He that made the eye sees them. He that planted the ear hears them. And he that corrects will correct them. But he will correct us too through them. But when they are done doing what God sent them to do to us, God will deal with them. It is a constant theme of the Bible. Verse 14, he reminds himself, for the Lord will not cast off his people. Sometimes we have to be reminded of this. God is not going to cast off his people. Neither will he forsake his inheritance. Sometimes we have to be reminded this is not how the story goes. The story doesn't go, you're in the house of Nebuchadnezzar and they tell you you have to bow down to the idol. 
and you defy it and you trust God and God just leaves you. That's not how the story goes. The story doesn't go, you see uh, a, a big giant standing up in the middle of the field and he says, you, you, you bunch of sissies, you're nobody and the God of Israel is nobody. And God just lets it be like that. No, God is going to raise up a David and deal with that. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is building his church in and through us, and he will have his holy will. He will not cast off his people. But what will he do? Verse 15 tells us, but judgment shall. You see how he's, the tense is moving? Now he's, now he's beginning to speak in faith. He's not wondering what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and is God around or would God stir himself up. But in verse 15, he's like, judgment shall return to the righteous. All the upright in heart shall follow it. In verse 16, he knows the answer, but he calls out the question so he can hear the answer. And this is how you know that he's really, 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 really doing good. You know, when God says, the Lord is the strength, you know, the psalmist says, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's wanting the crowd to yell back, no one, right? The Lord is the strength of my life. Who shall I run from? They're wanting the crowd, the crowd, even the inside of you to go, nobody because God. That's what he's wanting to happen here. He said, who will rise up for me against the evildoers and who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? He's so excited right now in his prayer. He knows the answer. He knows it's God. Amen. And that's what we have to do sometimes. We have to come from faithlessness to faith in our own prayers. I'll tell you who. The Lord of hosts, mighty in battle. That's who. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one. He will stand up and he will tread down the workers of iniquity. He then begins to testify about what God has done. And this is what we do. We, we turn away from the injustices that we've cast on God and we've trusted him with and we then begin to rejoice in what he has already done as a proof of what he will do the psalmist testifies here in verse 17 it says unless the lord had been my help right he's looking back in the past my soul had almost dwelt in silence and what that means is i would be dead people don't sing who are dead people don't talk people don't pray who are are dead they're silent unless the lord had been my help my soul had almost dwelt in silence I was a dead man by all rights one day, but God saved me then. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. There's a picture here that there was a time in his life when he had no reason to hope, that all hope was gone, that the end was near, that there was nothing that could keep him from death and destruction, but God himself, and you know what God did? God intervened miraculously intervene verse 19 in the multitude of my thoughts within me thy comforts delight my soul and that's where we have to go with this when we see injustices and we want vengeance we should pray that God would exact it we should believe that he will and it can affect our hearts I'm telling you we can become bitter and cynical and angry if not but if you can pray like this if you can deliver these burdens to God and leave them there you can be as he is in verse 19. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. You know, it is a comforting thing. And I'll tell you, I, for me, as people have uh, maligned and attacked me in my life, 
You know where the, you know where the comfort comes from, Josh? The comfort goes. God knows. God knows. God was there. He saw. He heard. He knows. Does he love me? Yeah. Has he delivered me? Yeah. Is he going to do it again? I hope he does. Now, I am also resigned to this. I will, God will receive glory from my life, whether it is through my life or my death or my failure or my success. Whatever he wants to do with me, I'm all his for him to do it. But in the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. God, you've been so good to me, and I expect your mercies will continue for me. Verse 20, he then revels in it. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee? What does it say in Psalm chapter 1? The ungodly are not so. They will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away, and the wind of the Spirit of God will indeed drive them away. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? Here he is lamenting that men who should have been good judges, men who should have been using God's law, they were using God's law to harm. You know, you can do that. You can use the rules and you can use the law to harm and to hurt. He's saying, is God having fellowship with that? You know, can they, can they make a legal argument that God can't beat? Everybody say, I don't think so. They were always trying to do it to Jesus, were they not? Doesn't it say in the Bible right here? You know, he will give the angels charge over thee, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Why don't you just jump off the temple here? Get behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. All he was doing was quoting the Bible. Yeah. The devil loves to quote the Bible. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning, and he will come to you, and he will try to pervert God's law by using it on you. Shall the throat of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? No, sir, Lord, you have no fellowship with the darkness, even with the enemy infiltrates the law and the judges. You are above all of them to intervene. Verse 24, they gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous, and they condemn the innocent blood. Because, you know, it's one thing when uh, there's a one person who's out to get you, but it's another when it's a whole bunch of them. And it says here in verse 21, they gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous, and they condemn the innocent blood. No matter how many of them gang up or gather around, God is greater than than them all. Can we say thanks be to God? But the Lord is my defense. It's just like we mentioned the prophet last week, right? He's there with his servant. The Syrians are surrounding him and he's like, Lord, could you open up the eyes of my servant so he could see what's really going on around here? And the servant goes to the window. He looks out and he's like, oh, hey, wait a minute. There's more with us than there are with them. They're the ones in trouble, not us, right? Verse 22, the Lord is my defense. God is the rock of my refuge. He shall bring upon them their own iniquity. He shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Everybody say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So why don't we give it back to him and quit acting like it's ours to deal? 
Why don't we cast it on him and trust him to deal it out rather than hold it in our hearts and let it make us bitter and faithless. Now this is as true today as it was in the days of the psalmist and the days of Xerxes, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. You may remember what happens next in the story of Esther, how her brave and devout uncle urges her to risk her life for the people and to go to the king and ask him to help the Jews. And the people do what? For three days they fast. And they do what? And they... I mean, they could have easily, just as easily got out swords and got out spears and formed a plot, but they didn't. What did they do? For three days, they prayed. They fasted. What did they know? They knew that God was more powerful than the king. He's more powerful than the king's law. He's more powerful than the multitude, the thousands of people that were against them. And what's amazing is what God was doing here, we would not have seen it because you think this is a story about uh, Haman and Mordecai, but it's not. Because when the law goes forth, as you will see, that God is going to expose not just one man who wants to destroy the Jews, but he's going to expose them all. You might know how God used the little Jewish girl to outwit Haman and gain the favor of her husband, the king. You might even know how God, as all the Jews far and wide, begin to fast and pray. Esther turned the tables on Haman, and he ended up being what? being hanged on the very gallow that he had made for Mordecai, right? But you know, God has a best way of doing revenge. Before he hung him, you know what he made him do? You remember this? He made, he made Haman lead Mordecai around on the king's horse all over town going, this is a great man, let's blow trumpets. And I mean, could you imagine? I think that was probably worse than being hung. The Bible says that when he came home, he fell apart crying. You might go, well, I don't think you should revel in that. Why not? Why not? It's what God does. God dealt out vengeance on Haman, not only that he died, but that he was humiliated before his death. But what you might not know is what happened after that. It takes three chapters to tell us God's vengeance on an extreme scale. For the Jews who read it today, remembering how God saved them and while they celebrate the Feast of Purim, they find satisfying vindication of them as a people. The, the children of Israel, separate, they celebrate this great feast called Purim, and it is because of what happened, not just to Haman, but because of what happened next. The law to have all of the Jews killed could not be undone because the king had signed it and he had put his ring seal in it. And so even though he wanted to protect his wife and even though he wanted things to be uh, good, the, the law said that all the Jews still had to die. And so if you were remembering the story, you might think, oh, well, you know, he remembered his wife's a Jew and it's all okay and Haman gets killed and the story's over. It's not how it goes. The law is still out there and the clock is still ticking. The bomb is still ticking. On the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews everywhere are going to be put to death and so you know what God did, Sister Joy? God used the law to make it plain who wanted the Jews to die. And so they were like, yeah, let, we're starting to turn in our Jewish neighbors, and we're writing them down, and here they all are. And as these people came to present all the names of all the Jews that should die, 
Mordecai and all their friends got all their names. And Xerxes let him ex execute judgment on them. And do you know, 75,000 people who hated God's people were killed. Now that's a whole lot more vengeance than I would have been expecting. I thought this, you know, you might be in the story and you go, this is all about me. This is all about good Mordecai and bad Haman. No, this is about God. You see, all of the stories that we go through are not about us at all. They're about what God is doing. God used Haman and he used Mordecai and he used Esther. He used them to save the people from 75,000 enemies that hated them so much that they wanted them to be put to death. Who would have even known that there were that many? Who would have had any idea? Could you imagine what would have happened in Nazi Germany? Now, that's a whole other thing. But you see how this situation brought to the surface the hatred of the people of God and how God exacted vengeance upon them. And the Jews celebrate this. And you might think it's odd, but what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the vengeance of God on their enemies. That is what the Feast of Purim is about. Psalm 94 reminds us that he that planted the ear hears our prayers as well as what the enemy is saying. And he still happily brings judgment on those who oppose his people. For God will not be mocked. Amen? I'm going to read to you what happened and then we will close. The other Jews that were in the king's province gathered themselves together and they stood for their lives on this 13th day of the 12th month. They had rest from their enemies and they slew of their foes 70 and 5,000. But they laid not their hands on their goods, their, the money. Like they didn't just kill the people and steal all their stuff. No, they just killed them and left their stuff. Why? Why did they do this? They did not need to be enriched even by their enemies. They trusted God for their wealth and their provision. On the 13th day of the month and on the 14th day, the same they rested and they made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day and the 14th day and the 15th day, and they rested and they made a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Adar a good day of gladness and feasting and a good day and the sending of portions one to another. They're sending each other food and gifts and blessings. What are they remembering? The vengeance of God the vengeance of God. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, the 15th day of the same year yearly, and the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day. Isn't that what God does? They thought that the, the clock was set. And it was the doomsday clock on the Jews. And instead of it being a doomsday clock on the Jews, it becomes a holiday on the calendar. Wow. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agiite, the enemy of the Jews, had devised to get the Jews to destroy them and had cast lots, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters to the wicked device which was devised against the Jews should return upon his own head, and he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. 
it was not only Haman that was hung, but it was all ten of his sons. Wherefore they called the days Purim after the name of Pur. Therefore the words of this letter and they which have seen concerning the matter which had come to them, the Jews ordained and took it upon them and upon their seed and upon all them that joined themselves so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time and every year. Folks, we talk about the answering of prayer. Sometimes we need to celebrate the vengeance of God. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. And Esther the queen, the daughter of Abinhael and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with authority to confirm this, and he sent letters to all the Jews, 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazuaras, the words of peace and truth to confirm the days of Purim in their times appointed, according to Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen, and they had decreed themselves for their seed the matters of fasting and their cry to God. You see, what they're celebrating is that God hears our prayers and that vengeance belongs to Him. Can we say thanks be to God? That's what Psalm 94 is about. It is about believing that He that planted the ear, He not only hears what our enemies say, but He hears the prayers of His people. And He will not suffer it to go undone but he will mete out judgment as he sees fit let us pray heavenly father we love you we thank you for the fact that you hear our prayers and we thank you lord for the vengeance that belongs to you lord if we have held it in our hands and if we have held it in our hearts today we offer it to you lord not because somehow we could wrest it from you but because we have stolen it and inappropriately held on to it in our hearts thinking that somehow we care more than you but lord we repent of it today we offer it to you and lord we encourage ourselves that you indeed hear our prayers you hear their boasting but you hear our prayers too and you lord will not neglect your people you will not cast off your people or forget your inheritance we are a people called by your name and you have loved us you will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No weapon formed against us will prosper. You will crush down and tread down with the vengeance, the wine press of your wrath upon them, Lord. And we, as it says in Psalm 58, we will rejoice to see the vengeance of God on the wicked and we indeed will wash our feet in their blood. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to serve you.